Hey everybody, we're back. I know that you must have just been itching and on the edge of your seat waiting for episode three. No, just kidding. But um, yeah, sorry that it's taken so long. Honestly, life happened. Um, <clears throat> and if I'm being completely candid, I also got a little lazy with the editing. But I'm super excited for um, today's episode. It's actually phenomenal. Um, we recorded it a few weeks ago. Caleb and I, and uh, it is such a treat, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Um, reminder, okay, Caleb and I are uh, college students. Um, we don't have as much wisdom in our pinkies as the guys we're talking to, uh, and so we aren't trying to speak objectively, Caleb and I. We're here to listen and to pry from these people, and we're really grateful to be able to do that, and it's a perfect excuse to do that with this podcast. So, um, don't take any of our words as gospel truth. I guess don't take them as gospel truth from anyone but Jesus, but the guy we're talking to today has a lot better things to say about Jesus than we do. So please listen. Um, no matter who you are, you can learn something from this dude. He's awesome. And yeah, reach out to us, have a conversation about what you think about today's episode with us, with the people around you, share it with a friend. Yeah. And now the 1975 music is swelling, so that means it's time to get to the episode. See ya. Hey everybody, um, welcome to Doxology and Daily Sacraments. Today we have Reverend John Hall from Incarnation Church in Tallahassee. Uh, how are we doing, John? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I talked a little bit about um, John in the intro, but um, John, can we get a introduction? Kind of, could you walk us through your faith walk? Um, how did you get here? I, I know that you came. Yeah, from sure. London. Do you want the the long version or the really short version? Uh, I mean. You're born in London, went to Cambridge, so it sounds like the long version would be pretty interesting. I'd, I'd like to hear that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was born in England, and um, I grew up in the Church of England. Both my parents are Christians, and they've um, both been going to Church of England churches all, the, all of my life. Um, and so I've been going along with them. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners know, but um, in England, the Church of England is um, very divided into camps. Uh, of different kinds of practice so um, you have churches that are very high very liturgical they do very formal services um, then you have churches that are very charismatic they're very full of the holy spirit um, they practice spiritual gifts um, and uh, have healing prayer and things like that uh, there are churches that are uh, very evangelical so very word-based um, they tend to pro uh, prioritize the teaching of the word and bible study have very long theological sermons and then there's even a kind of fourth camp of churches you might call uh, liberal in the sense of generous uh, they care a lot about social justice and the global poor um, and so I grew up in um, I started off the um, very liturgical kind till I was about eight and then my parents moved to one of the very charismatic kinds of churches uh, for the next sort of five years and then um, we moved to our local church that we could walk to from our house, which was kind of the fourth category, the sort of social justice kind of uh, liberal church. Um, and then in college, I ended up in the in the other category, the evangelical category. 
um, of very word-based churches. So I've kind of, um, I did I did all four of the sort of basic camps in England. And um, what's true in England is that for the most part, those camps are very strongly subdivided. They actually don't like each other very much. <laughs> they kind of critique each other. And they, yeah, <laughs> um, they don't see much value in what the others are doing. Um, I have to say for myself, um, it was really the evangelical stream that brought me to faith. So I, I, I think I always had some level of relationship with the Lord Jesus, but um, around the time when I was 16, when I was just starting to um, get into sort of the more evangelical stream of these churches, um, it was when the penny really dropped for me, I, and it was through the teaching of the word. So I was going at the time to a church where um, the focus was on the sermon, it was uh, about 45 minutes to an hour of preaching at the end, um, very exegetical um, and scholarly. And I, I just found myself very much falling in love with the Lord through his word, experiencing the power of his word to change and transform me. At the same time, I was going to a Bible study for college students um, that were studying the book of Romans and just loved that. And the same thing was happening with the Lord's word. And so I kind of really met the Lord properly and personally through the power of his word. Um, came came into the faith through the sort of evangelical door. And uh, that's kind of been my main uh, characteristic still today going forward. I, when I try to introduce people to the Lord, I'm usually trying to do it through the word, through scripture. Um, so I moved to the States. I married an American who came to England for college called Sarah. And um, we moved together to Jacksonville, Florida, and went to her dad's church. He's a, he at that time was a priest. He's now a bishop. Um, so I went to my uh, father-in-law's church in Jacksonville, and the thing I loved about it right away was that it combined all of the four elements um, that I talked about in one service. That um, uh, I'd only had one at a time in England. So there was no, there was none of this kind of feeling that you had to pick. So in the same time, you could have a church that was very rooted historically, um, uh, open to the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, preaching the word and caring about sort of social justice um, and, and work in the world together. And, and that's kind of one thing I particularly loved. And so um, that's been something I've sort of championed going forward. That's the characteristic of the church that I lead now. Wow. That's really cool. So next next question, I guess that would relate to those four different types of churches that you're trying to bring together in yours is how would you define worship in a broad sense? Hmm. Um, all right. So key things that scripture talks about when it talks about worship um, are uh, there's, there's a sense of the fear of the Lord. So coming before the Lord, um, acknowledging his holiness, his greatness, it's a sort of bowing. It's a bowing of myself to God as a much greater being than I. Um, another sort of synonym for the Hebrew word for worship is service. So um, when God is calling his people out of Egypt, um, the, the um, request that Moses puts to Pharaoh is, uh, uh, the Lord is calling his people out into the wilderness so that they can worship me. And, and you might translate so they can serve me. Um, so uh, I think Christian worship is, is a combination of those things. It's a, it's a giving of ourselves to the Lord um, to bow before his holiness, to praise him for his glory. And it's also got a component of serving him, of bringing him kind of our gifts, our treasures, um, and of uh, 
giving our time in service of, of him and his kingdom. Wow. That's, that's two interesting words to those. Those aren't two yeah. words that I would immediately put to, especially I liked how, you know, I ask you what, what worship means. And I don't think I talked to many, um, you know, college kids my age or many people who go to a non-denominational church. And when I say, you know, what is worship? Uh, what would you define it? The first word they say is fear of the Lord. <laughs> so that's awesome. It's um, not a very common thing. No. <laughs> I want to talk about um, service really quickly. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, in talking to our mutual friend who goes to incarnation, he said um, that the placement of incarnation was very important in terms of being in um, a place that I'm pretty sure is of a lower socioeconomic status. Um, and so um, you talk about serving the Lord and one of the ways that the Lord calls us to serve him is by serving uh, the poor. So how does that connect to worship you think for you and incarnation? Yeah, great. Yeah. Thanks for that question. So um, uh, in Tallahassee, expect you both know well, and probably the listeners know well, um, there's uh, quite a blend of, people uh, in the central area in the downtown area so um uh right in the center of town uh where you have tennessee street uh tennessee and intersection of monroe uh if you turn uh, south on monroe from there you get the uh, capital you get all of the um law offices and businesses that are sort of associated with the capital lifestyle if you uh, take uh, Tennessee West from there, you get um, FSU and then uh, further down TCC and you get the student world, um, college town, um, which stretches down to the south from Tennessee. And then um, in that same part north of Tennessee, you have um, Frenchtown, the historic um, part of town that um, has been historically uh, much higher percentage black and um, in, in this time has sort of been the lower uh, income part of town, uh, one of one of the lower income part, parts of town. Um, so we initially planted kind of right in that whole complex. <laughs> so um, uh, I planted with a friend called Taylor. Uh, we moved to Tallahassee for the purpose of planting a church um, in, in downtown Tallahassee. And he has a house um, in Frenchtown. Uh, on the intersection of Martin Luther King and Brevard Street. And so we looked for a place where we could plant uh, right in that area, particularly kind of on, around in the Brevard Street area. And of course, um, you're always limited by money and uh, what's available. Um, but we did manage to find kind of a, a storefront property that we could rent for uh, about four years. Um, right there on Brevard Street, um, it was uh, like a, a furniture store. They had a big warehouse space they could they could rent out to us. So yeah, that's where we planted. It was in Frenchtown. It was um, about three blocks from Tennessee, so it was really handy for FSU and Student World. Um, it was also fairly handy for the government world, but that didn't really affect us much. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a deliberate decision to um, live um, live where people were living um, and to live uh, where we could be of service um, to the poor. Uh, also, we've from the beginning of the church, we've had a really multi-ethnic vision. Um, we long to be a church um, that's kind of practicing and promoting racial reconciliation and demonstrating the effectiveness of that through our worship. Um, and, you know, that's not something every church can do because it depends a lot on 
where you are and whether the place where you are is uh, is uh, diverse ethnically. Um, but the Tallahassee is, and so we wanted to um, try to um, celebrate that through our worship. That's awesome. Beautiful, yeah. So um, I just wanted to ask also, as an Anglican minister, as you've had lots of experience with uh, high church as mm -hmm. well, in regard to our daily worship, mm -hmm. and it may not be connected, maybe that's an important caveat, but um, how can we relate uh, the sacraments to the process, like our daily rhythms? Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, so um, first let's talk about what we mean by sacraments. Um, so um, what we mean as Anglicans, our kind of little descriptor of it is um, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Um, so the denominations, actually the sacraments are the most, probably the most controversial differentiators between denominations, right? So um yeah, you have on on the high end the Catholics and Catholic and Orthodox churches, um, who have a very sort of high view of the sacraments. The Catholic Church probably now has seven of them: uh, Holy Communion or the Mass, um, Baptism, and then you've got um, Confirmation, Marriage, uh, Ordination, uh, the Anointing of the Sick, or Last Rites. And I always forget the last one. <laughs> We'll forgive you. The Catholic Church will forgive you. Uh, Why do I always forget the last one? Yeah, never mind. <laughs> um, in the um, in the Anglican Church, we uh, we have two two sacraments: just uh, Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper. We treat them as um, important sacraments because the Lord Jesus Himself commanded them in both cases, um, and. Then also between the denominations, we have, um, there's a kind of difference in view as to uh, what's really happening when those sacraments take place, right? So um, in the Catholic Church, uh, the sacraments are what's called efficacious. They do what it says on the tin, right? So um, if baptism is the sacrament of rebirth and salvation, uh, when you baptize some, someone, that's what happens, right? Um, the mass is uh, the sacrament of unification in the body uh, through the through the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus, and when you take it, that's what happens. Um, so, uh, on the very low end uh, of Reformed traditions, this, they still practice the sacraments, usually much less frequently in the case of um, communion, and they usually have a much more uh, symbolic uh, attachment to them. So, um, I guess you could say. Zwinglian, it's like um, the idea that you do them because of what Jesus has done in the past. So because Jesus has um, died on the cross in the past because of the Last Supper, we, we remember that, we commemorate that in our practice of the Lord's Supper, um, where we remember that he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and we, and we share that experience together. But it's really just a, a remembering of what's happened. Um, similar with baptism, um, when we baptize people, the, the sort of uh, Zwinglian approach is um, that the water is just a symbol of what God has already done um, through his Holy Spirit. So um, it's a symbol of the rebirth, uh, resurrection and indwelling that the Spirit's done 
uh, in a person already. So when we see it happen, we mark it with a baptism. Um, in the Anglican Church, we are between those two ideas. Okay, so um, we neither believe that the sacrament is entirely efficacious by itself, but neither do we believe that it's only a sign of what God's already done. So um, it's more like um, it's a sign of what he is doing in the present moment through the sacrament. So it does, in fact, communicate. We say it communicates grace. So that the, the thing that it is signifying is happening to the person. Um but not purely, um, not purely on, on a, as a result of the physical thing you're doing, but also of, uh, as a result of that person's faith, as a result of that person's interaction with the Lord through the sacrament. Does that make sense? That's kind of complicated. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So yeah. for us, we, like, you know, Caleb and I grew up in um, a church of God, church, Protestant church, and we did the, and taking the Lord's Supper, um, um, you know, eating crackers, drinking grape juice. That was um, a, like in remembrance, a commemoration. So what would you describe in, in the Anglican taking of that sacrament? What does that mean for you yeah. guys? Yeah. Um, so in the taking of the sacrament, um, so, you know, Catholics use the term transubstantiation, the, um, the body, the bread and the wine, uh, physically become the body and blood of Christ and Anglicans talk about consubstantiation so it's like uh, the, the true body and blood of Christ are with the elements um, oh, interesting. so um, yeah so as we say the prayers of uh, consecration of the elements um, the, uh, the they spiritually become the body and blood of Christ and so as we eat them we're spiritually partaking in the body and blood of Christ um, and so we believe then that um you know, as Jesus said in John chapter six, my body is real food and my blood is real drink that we are sort of feeding up. I guess you could think of it as feeding our souls, you know, taking in a meal that um, our souls need to to live. Wow. So it's not a pure remembrance of what Jesus has done. Although, Of course, it's it's very dependent on the historical reality of right. what he's done and it does commemorate it. Um, but it's also in some sense like a... a um, a reenactment and we stay very far from the idea of like a repeated sacrifice you know the, right. the hebrews lesson is it's once for all upon the cross so we're not repeating the sacrifice but it's much more like a jewish idea of remembrance where the community relives the experience so i don't know if you've ever been to kind of a jewish um passover feast um but in, in quite a lot of these uh jewish homes where they go through the passover again it's not just remembering the past it's actually treating it as something we did like it was it was our family history and we're sort of remembering you know remembering us doing that uh, they have a very uh what's the word for it just a real and present view of remembering things real and present i like that that's awesome. I'll yeah. have to shoot my pastor an email about that. <laughs> Protestant pastor about that. Um, so, um, Anglican churches um, in general are more liturgical mm -hmm. by nature, I, I think. Than I, I didn't know about the the four different camps, uh, but as far as I know, more liturgical than than plenty of um, Protestant churches, especially non denominational. The one that's sure. ones that are rising in popularity now. How important do you think liturgical structure is in, in worship? 
Yeah, what a great question. Yeah, and just to clarify, I'll say on those four camps, so that's not really part of the design in England. That's that's something that's happened in the modern day that um, right. I was just experiencing. But um, we just put a name to it. Is what we it's, did. Yeah, it's not the way that it's always been. Um, so, well, there's lots of ways to answer that question. Um, I'll talk about it first of all, like philosophically, from the point of view of how the Anglican Church came to be. Um, what you have to understand about us is that we were made in England in a very tumultuous time, right? So um, it's the time of the Reformation where Luther is nailing 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church. And then like it's, it's sparking this huge outpouring of, of thought. I mean, it's basically, um, you could say like a, a birth of evangelicalism in the idea that like the common man gets the Bible and you get to think about the Bible and you get to um, write and reason and study scripture for yourself. And it's tremendously exciting. It's like opening up this whole candy store for um, mm -hmm. Christmas uh, morning thinking man. Yeah. Um, and so you get amazing scholars, probably John Calvin being chief among them um, who are just uh, love me relishing the candy store and writing amazing. <laughs> um, and it's a total rediscovery of what the Bible says um and 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 you have to realize that in in the culture that they're living in the common man didn't understand a thing about christianity he was in church every sunday morning and knew nothing at all because certainly like in england um nobody spoke latin except the you know ruling classes and the uh, priests and the ordinary person was going showing up to church every sunday because it was the law and it was the total norm sitting through an hour's mass and not knowing anything that was happening hearing it on latin and leaving completely you know <laughs> ignorant of the lord and unfed um and so the idea that we could actually understand this thing that we were doing um and that we could read the scripture for ourselves was enormously exciting but um also enormously dangerous so at this time it's you under the rule of um the henry's henry the seventh and henry the eighth very dangerous kings if you're caught with an english version of scripture you'll probably be killed like burned um and any any sense that you um uh are sympathetic to um the the reformed ideas to luther or any, any of his ideas and you're likely to be imprisoned um or burned again so um very dangerous time and uh I'll, I'll sort of fast forward the tumult of this season but like you know with with henry the um the church in england which has been a catholic church and united with rome separates from rome and henry the eighth becomes the supreme head of the church in england he doesn't want to reform it he's a faithful catholic but he separates the church from the pope and becomes the head itself then he dies his daughter mary um uh, no, sorry, Edward first. His son, Edward, takes the throne first, and he is nine years old, and he only reigns about six years, but he has had very reformed um, uh, people bringing him up. So basically, this this uh, seed of reformers gets into the power in England, and England goes through something of a, of a reformation, um, although it's uh, very clumsy. So it's like a kind of, um, people are, are fiercely sort of, told to totally reform their views, leave Catholicism behind and, and adopt sort of a Lutheran theology. That causes like t 
turmoil, as you can imagine. Um, six years later, um, Edward's um, sister Mary ascends the throne and she has been brought up by Catherine of Aragon. She's a very faithful Catholic and she restores Catholicism to England and she burns a bunch of the key reformers who wow. reformed it under Edward. So there's this horrible like bloodshed and war. Um, and then after Mary uh, is her sister Elizabeth who finally brings peace in the country right so you've had a back and forth of reform or catholic and um you've uh the country's just had so many headaches and heartaches uh, and what elizabeth does is basically a settlement you know it's called the elizabethan settlement and it's also called the via media the middle way we're going to have a church that can we bring this country back together after these years of, of turmoil and the basic solution is elizabeth is again a protestant a reformer she believes in luther and his works um, and uh, the archbishop of canterbury is thomas cranmer who's also convinced uh, of the rightness of the reformation um, and so they want a they want a theologically reformed foundation to the church but um they change tack on what most reformers have done which is to throw out everything catholic that's come before so there's basically been an idea of like clean off the barnacles off the boat you know clean the slate um uh, get rid of all of this nonsense of seasons and candles and um and marking the church year and stained glass and all this gold and everything that's distracted people from the true gospel um and if it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. So the Elizabethan settlement had a different idea, which was, well, if it's not harmful, if it's not obnoxious to scripture, and if it's been proven to actually help people in history, then let's keep it. But let's underpin everything with a Protestant Reformed theology, right? So what Anglicanism is, is this kind of hybrid. And actually, when you look at how it's made, it's really messy. It's like, it's really messy, <laughs> right? Um, and it comes about through like the machinations of kings and politics oh, and force and all these other so things. That's so cool though. Yeah, wow. but actually what it comes up with is something I, I actually have fallen in love with, um, which is a way to really embrace the fullness of reformed theology, which I actually believe was a total rediscovery of Christianity in the 16th century. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, John Calvin is, is essentially as right about the Bible as anybody has ever been. Um, and, um, but then to sort of also maintain the, uh, the historical uh, roots and the, and the foundations in the early church and in the things the church grew up. So it's to say that like, you know, not everything the church did between the year 300 and the year 1500 was bad. You know, not everything they came up with was uh was a step in the wrong direction and actually some of these things were deeply helpful and came about through you know centuries of actually discipling people and raising them up in the faith um okay that's a long way to get get to the point of <laughs> like um when you live in england there's not very much love for the liturgy among most people because it's the default right so all, all churches are liturgical and most people who actually come to a living faith in jesus are actually leaving that stuff um in this country, um, most people who are Anglicans are doing it because they want Anglicanism. They want a liturgical form of worship. If you didn't want it, you can go to much more exciting churches down the street. <laughs> yeah. um, so the people that are in my denomination are in it because this is what they want. The, the form of worship is actually what distinguishes us. Um, and so 
what we have, uh, I'll show you this, this is our Book of Common Prayer, right? So um, our form of worship is actually our belief in the Anglican Church. So one of the founding principles of it in, in the time it was formed under Cranmer was this Latin phrase, um, lex orandi, lex credendi, which translates um, the law of prayer is the law of belief, law of faith. Um, and the idea is that instead of having kind of a, a very long catechism that says what we believe, or instead of having a set of uh, principles, like a confession, like a Westminster confession that says what we believe, we have a prayer book that says what we believe, because the way that we pray, the way we approach God, that is our faith. Um, so actually the liturgy, the form of worship, um, is the major distinguishing mark. So you ask how important is liturgy? Um, in terms of like Anglicanism, it's incredibly important. It's very, very core to our sense of um, discipleship and identity in the Lord. Yeah. I love that. I always so, feel like I answer you very long. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. Um, so how, how do you think that the, um, I forget the Latin, but like, the how prayer is the foundation for belief mm -hmm. um how does that affect your prayer life as an anglican and you like is that normal like do you feel like you have a traditional anglican prayer life mm -hmm. because of that yeah that's a good question i actually i don't feel like i'm personally very traditional when it comes to my own prayer life um so in this book of common prayer there's provision not only for sunday worship but daily prayers right so um there's the beginning of the book is called the daily office and it includes four periods of prayer a day morning prayer noonday evening prayer and compline every day um and each each service has its own readings from scripture um and its own prayers and you know really what the prayer book is is, is just scripture organized for worship um, the prayer book is chock full of scripture and it's like uh, if you follow it it just has you reading tons and tons of bible every day um i don't follow that i'm not faithful in following that i know people who are um i know people who just keep one or two of those services a day i know a few people who do all four um and i think it i think it's very rich i think the people who do that i, I totally respect them and i think they have a really deep um prayer life my own prayer life is actually a lot more evangelical it's a lot more what um i imagine you guys do i just have a i have a quiet time in the morning i, I kind of journal my prayers and um it's very extemporaneous um it's what's in my heart and i just read scripture on the basis of like the next little chunk that i'm doing day after day um so in terms of like my own spirituality, the liturgical side of, of uh, my faith is really expressed primarily on Sundays. Um, it's through our, our worship Sundays that, um, uh, that always takes the traditional form of um, a twofold form of word and sacrament. So every Sunday we do communion, not every Sunday in COVID, but normally every Sunday we do communion. Um, and we said so the first half of the service is the word where there's um, readings from Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm and Gospel. If we have a, a readings from all four parts of the, the canon and then uh, a sermon. And then the second half of the service is uh, the sacrament where we celebrate Holy Communion. Nice. Yeah. Um, so connecting to the, the type of service that you guys go for in the Anglican Church, many 
contemporary um, non-denominational American uh, churches tend to put a lot of their revenue. Um, and, and I want to preface this by saying, you know, especially from Caleb and I, as uh, two 20 year old college students, um, we are not nearly as wise as many of the people um, in leadership at these, at these churches. So I'm, I'm, we're really not trying to rip it apart, but just kind of question and, and think about these things critically out of a love for the church rather than um, just a plain uh, critique for it for the sake of critiquing. But a lot of these churches put a ton of money into making church um, look super uh, like sexy and to make worship look super cool. And I mean, um, I say this as a compliment, you know, your church incarnation doesn't doesn't do that you know your 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 church by the by i would think the common definition i wouldn't i don't know if i'd call your sunday service very cool you know oh it's so, not a real cool man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so i want to yeah. hear some of your thoughts on that yeah so oh man i just feel like there's so much uh, every question you ask opens like several file <laughs> cat uh, <laughs> Um, because I mean, there's Angli some Anglicans spend a lot of money on their worship, no yeah. doubt. It's not something that is foreign to our uh whole way of being. Uh, we we do actually quite like beautiful things. Um, so if we spend money, we spend them on beautiful chalices or um uh, vestments like the nice robes with all of the um fancy embroidery on them and uh stained glass you know and 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 beautiful furnishings for the church that's what we spend money on we rarely spend any money on light on lights or or sound machines or uh smoke uh, i guess we get our smoke from um what's called a, a thurible it's uh it's actually we burn little charcoal oh, yeah. <laughs> fragrant incense smoke but um, original I, smoke machine yeah, right yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> Uh, we, so why we, why do you um what what causes you to allocate money towards these fancy chalices and, and, and furnishings and stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's another great question. Um, and I think it I think it is about beauty. I think um there's a value for beauty, and it's not um beauty for its own sake, but beauty because that helps direct us to the Lord. Um, so we come from a tradition that's very rich in symbolism. And usually when you go into um, Anglican churches that have spent a lot of time and money uh, making themselves beautiful, um, what you'll notice if you look is just tons and tons of symbolism everywhere. Like, so, you know, you, you'll get, um, uh, I don't know. So there's one church in town, for example, that has a um, beautiful round stained glass window at the back as you walk in, it's the wall behind you and another one at the front. Um, and so the two stained glass windows both have 12 panels. And in the one at the back, all of the symbolism is Eden, right? So it's all the creation. It's uh, the creation of um, the land and the water and the light and the day and the night, the sun and the moon and all the animals. And it's, it's all, that's all the, the themes of the windows. In the front window is new creation. So it's the um, scenes of Jesus ascended with the elders and um, apostles around him and uh, New Jerusalem stuff. So the idea of walking into the church is that you walk through one door and you're between 
the first creation and the new creation, right? So that's, it's like symbolically, this is where we live. Um, and, and that's just the sort of thing Anglicans do all the time. It's like, you know, loving. Classic Anglican. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> loving to just decorate in lavish ways that um, communicate to the whole person. And that's really one of the sort of secrets of what we do is that we just believe that in order to come to God, we come to God as whole people. So that includes bodies, souls, hearts, and minds. Um, so like we, in our services, there's a lot of moving, um, not the kind of moving you do in Pentecostal services, but there's a lot of <laughs> different <laughs> right? So uh, when we pray, we kneel. When we sing, we stand. When we say the creed, what we confess, we stand. Um, when we hear the gospel read, we stand. Uh, when we um, uh, listen to the sermon or, sing, or, or pray the psalm, we sit. Um, and there's times where during communion where it's like now you kneel and it's like the idea of that i mean it's not just ritual formula formalism it's um the idea that i am training my whole self to worship and my body has a role in that too so as i lift my hand in in worship i am also lifting my heart at the same time where i'm training my spirit to focus on the lord as i kneel i am remembering my humility before god and i'm remembering to confess and repent so there's just the sense that every part of us does something um and that the the truth of god is not just something that goes on in our mind it's not just something that we listen to and think about and then respond to verbally it's also something that we take in with our eyes something that we take in with our bodies something that we feel in our hearts um, and that reminds me of actually yeah. uh caleb and i went to israel over christmas break and, and okay. we got to go to the wall and seeing a lot of orthodox jews like i just was really reminded of literally like worshiping god with their whole body they would just be rocking back and forth reciting yeah. scripture mm -hmm. so that's an interesting similar yeah i've seen that too yeah and like like in the christian puritan tradition shakers and quakers both yep. have their own yeah. like that that mm -hmm. act that's right anyways that's good yeah, so we do spend money um, in those ways to um, beautify our worship spaces. Um, but it's, that's not essential to what we do. And in fact, in Incarnation, we've spent very, very little money. We, we've, we've been the beneficiaries of um, a lot of inherited things. So we do have some beautiful things, um, but they've usually been given to us free by other churches. Um, we haven't really ourselves spent um, anything in that direction uh we do the, the other side of the coin of course is like surely any dollar you spend dressing up your own space is a dollar you're not giving away to the poor you're not doing you know um the work um i mean i'll, I'll say one other thing about that because that formula isn't totally clean because if you think about the old english cathedrals uh unfathomable amounts of money were spent on them like in today's money like billions of dollars to build these huge stone things and it wasn't just for the benefit of the church or the priests it was actually for the benefit of the whole town and the whole country because it was like those buildings became the property of every poor person in the country it was like i have a cathedral wow. right it belonged to you yeah. uh, it was mm. it was your property as much as anybody's you could go in there for the services it was a place you could be married or um or you know uh, do the festive times of the year um be buried maybe um 
and uh, and so it was like it, it, there wasn't this total uh, distinction between a dollar spent on the church is not a dollar spent on the poor. Sometimes it, you know, actually, you bless the poor with a beautiful church as much as, as anything you can do for the poor. Mm. But um, I do think today that's more of a reality that um, uh, oftentimes the only pe people we're really blessing with a beautiful church are a small number of Christians, and actually, the poor sometimes feel uncomfortable in a lavish church. It's just not. It's not where they want to be. It's not where they want to go. Um, and so we're actually better off having a humble looking church. Actually, you're more likely to have the poor come in and worship with you, which is far more precious. Um, and then be actually having the money, if you whatever money you have on hand for um, ways that might meaningfully and sustainably help lift the poor out. Wow. So do you think that there's a, a balance between the beauty of the church and the service of, like today, because you mentioned how historically it had, uh, there was a pretty split balance, you know, 50, 50, maybe 60, 40, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But like today, given our, our cultural context of social media, where if you don't have the most beautiful Instagram page, if you don't dress in the right brands or the cool brands, or um, for churches, if you don't shape up to the church down the street, like you said, mm -hmm. how can we balance that as Christians and as we go forward in churches and become leaders? Yeah, that's tremendously difficult. <laughs> that's a difficult subject. Just, um, I, I think it comes down to like the measure of everything we do is the gospel right it's it's about the gospel are we living the gospel are we teaching the gospel are we spreading the gospel um at the end of the day uh an effective church is not measured by the number of people it gathers on a sunday morning but by the number of people it sends out on a monday morning um and are those people um taking the gospel where it needs to go is it spreading are we are we reaching um the people who don't know the Lord with the good news and are we reaching the people who are sort of uh, repressed in society and, and pushed down with justice, with, uh, with physical good news, practical good news, right? Um, so uh, I think to the degree that beauty serves the gospel, beauty is good. Hmm. But the degree to which it's a distraction from the gospel um, it, it's not good. We, we, we get rid of it. So um, I, I do think in, you know, in a lot of those old cathedrals, the beauty really served the gospel. It, yeah. it did bring people in when they came in, it elevated their hearts and their sights. You know, it gave them things to think about that were beyond their very humdrum lives. Um, it gave them things to look at that inspired them. Um, it helped their hearts love heavenly things. Um, wow. I don't think I don't think our beauty nat naturally does that as easily now yeah. um, and instead it can often feel like the beauty is the possession of the wealthy the people that have actually funded that and put that in and therefore the, the, the ones who don't own it can't share it they don't feel comfortable you know, if you have a really, a really glorious church that has a really glorious concert, you know, uh, 
um, little orchestra in there playing a beautiful chorale. I don't, I don't know how many poor people would feel comfortable coming into that. Can they, can they enjoy it? Is it for them? I, I think they'd feel like if I came in here, I'd be shooed out because this is for the, the decent people, you know, the, the, <laughs> the people that ha um, have their, have their stuff together. So, um, as that, where that's the case, I mean, I, I would say ditch it. It's not serving the gospel, is it? Um, but, um, you know, um, there's, there's, so there's another fact I'm thinking of. So, um, I, uh, we actually rent our space, uh, our church right now. And that's really, really good for us because <laughs> I, I would be sorely tempted to invest way too much time and energy beautifying a space if I owned it. So we rent it and that uh, really helped. Um, the church we rent from, um, is a predominantly black church and their ministers drive very, very nice cars, like very expensive new cars. Um, and I was looking into this in, in black culture and realizing that um, this is really important. You know, it's really important um, in this culture of the, uh, that like this church is in um, that the leaders be dignified with, with a real tangible sign of honor. Um, and it's, it's, it's important uh, that um, it, it, how do I say this? It, 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 it's connected with a, a sense of community pride like there's a there's a way in which the whole church actually um benefits from that um to feel like you know this is my pastor and this is his there are symbols of his status and he and he's a person that i'm proud of um and so things like that where there's a community ownership of stuff and there's a um there's an importance in in honor that's communicated i think that can be fine um i think it can it can actually have a place it can um uh serve its purpose well but where it's for just our own pride where it's for building our own kingdom uh where it's for our own comfort then obviously it's antithetical to the gospel and, and hmm. that's the things we get rid of antithetical wow man i would that's about man i wish we could talk more that's about all the time we have but that was that was so good. Expect to see me um, in your pews in January. I have to come. <laughs> yeah, come to I'm a college student, so don't expect too much of a tithe. But <laughs> <laughs> we God, really just, appreciate. Having thank you, you so much. Wow. I awesome. you're leaving me with more questions than answers, and that's <laughs> well. That's, yeah. We can definitely do this again, and oh, uh, sure. on the record or off the record, I'll be glad to talk to you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. What a treat to have John Hall, am I right, guys? Thank you so much, John, for being on, telling us, walking us through your experience with Anglicanism, uh, your perspective on worship. It's just awesome, awesome. Could have talked for hours. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. We will have another episode up pretty shortly. But until then, please share this link with uh, friends, family, um, the old ladies at church who serve you food. Uh, we're a brand new podcast. So if you'd like, uh, follow us on Spotify, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, however you'd like to show your support. If it's just a quick text or an email, we'd appreciate it so much. So thank you guys. Um, thanks for listening in to Doxologies and other daily sacraments. Thank you.